Covenant. I'm going to do two, two messages on the Articles of Faith, one on the Church Covenant, and you can tell based on that time frame that these are going to be overviews. Uh, these are not in-depth um, uh, studies into these uh, into these documents, but they are overviews and they are reminders. So uh, we're going to look at the Articles of Faith today, and as I go through each one, um, I'm not trying to um, uh, go word for word or even follow the, the wording exactly as to how Brother Wallace, Brother Mike articulated those in our Articles of Faith, uh, but I am trying to uh, pull out the concepts and um, look biblically at those. So one question may be, why do we even have an Articles of Faith? What do we, what do we view that as? Well, it's worth saying... Um, no church should view their articles of faith as some sort of an inspired document or some sort of an addition to Scripture. Uh, that's not what these are. But what these are are um, uh, doctrines that um, we stand on, that we believe ought to be articulated well, and we also believe that if you are going to be a member at this church, that these are doctrines, these are truths from Scripture that you must also embrace because the fellowship that we have is fellowship in Christ and in the truth. And we could say that, and that sounds fine, and that, you know, that, that is fine. But unless there's some sort of a meat, some sort of meat on those bones, that is, unless there's some sort of substance that we're actually agreeing to believing, then that's sort of a meaningless statement. So, the Articles of Faith are just a way that we can clearly articulate the distinctives um, and the truths that we hold as a body together. Um, we have recently, Sister Lee put together a, a new church uh, directory, and in that church directory, the Articles of Faith, the Church Covenant is printed. And so I hope you've been able to look at that. I've mentioned that a few times already, and maybe reference that again as you uh, think back over the, the messages in the, in the coming weeks. And so again, I'm going to, uh, to go through these articles in an overview fashion, and I'm also really distilling the doctrines that are laid out in each article, not trying to go word for word with the way Brother Mike or Brother Wallace worded it, not because I have a problem with their wording, uh, but because the, the point is to give a very basic overview of the article. So point number one, and again, these are all things that we would say are uh, non-negotiables. Okay, non-negotiables. There are some things in Scripture that we would say, you know, we can we can see how you might come to this conclusion or that conclusion, but anything that we've put in the Articles of Faith uh, are, are things that we say Scripture has clearly articulated this. And uh, one of the things you'll notice if you've looked at the Articles of Faith is that the statement is then followed by a series of Scripture references that are meant to back up what was said. And so in any of these, we're saying there isn't any wiggle room here. Uh, we believe that Scripture is clear on this and that for us to, to have a foundation of unity, we are unified around these realities. So number one, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in... The Trinity. What do we mean when we say that? 
Well, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39 says, Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath, and there is none else. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about what God says about God, about God says about Himself, and by the way, as we look at all these articles, essentially we're saying this is what God says about fill in the blank. Well, when we think about the Trinity, we start out with this teaching that God is one God. There is only one God. There is no other. God says in this passage, or, or, or Mo, he says to, to Moses in this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, uh, that there is one God and there is none else. Um, you've, uh, uh, if you've been around, then, then then you've heard this before. You've you're familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity. Fundamentally, God is one God. But then we also say that the Bible teaches, and we'll we'll see this scripturally, that there is one God in three distinct eternal persons. So one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we believe that because Scripture bears that out. Uh, the Father, God the Father, um, He is God. Psalm 90 Moses is writing in Psalm 90, and he starts out this way. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Speaking of God the Father here. Scripture also teaches that Jesus Christ is who is the Son of God, is God and has been God eternally. Look in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So not only out of Psalm 90 is the Father... God, but John chapter one, and we've we've seen this as we've spent time in the Gospel of John, that Scripture time and time again in the New Testament um, refers to Jesus Christ, views Jesus Christ as God, and then the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> We see that there's a direct um, there's a direct um, um, reference to the Holy Spirit as God in, in Acts chapter five. Ananias and Sapphira lie about the money that they uh, uh, that they gave and and. As they're being addressed in verse three, it says, but 
Peter said, this is Acts chapter 5, verse 3. By the way, these references are all in the, in the articles of faith if you go back and look at those. Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own? in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Ghost? And then into the next verse, he says, you've lied to God. Now, we could spend, you know, messages on this uh, unpacking the Trinity. The fact that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and yet um, uh, there is one God who is in three persons. Sometimes people can kind of scratch their heads at this and say, I don't really, can't really comprehend this. I can't really get a clear grasp on what's being described here. Does it mean that there's one God in three persons? Well, one of the realities that we have to keep in mind, and the second point in the Articles of Faith will, will bear this out, but is that we come to worship an incomprehensible God and we are dependent on what He has revealed to us about Himself to know Him. So we can't philosophically take realities that we find in Scripture and try to twist them up and shape them up in a way that makes more sense to us. All we can do is take what Scripture gives us and stand on it. So one of the things that we, the second point, and I'm not there yet, but the second point that we're going to come to is our view of Scripture. And we say that we believe Scripture is authoritative. That means whatever Scripture says uh, is what we believe. Our, our, our beliefs are built on what Scripture has, has laid out. And here's what we know about what Scripture has laid out. Number one, based on what we just looked at, Scripture refers to all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as God. And then we also know that there are times when these distinct persons of the Trinity all show up at the same time or in the same conversation. So, for instance, if you reference Matthew chapter 3, 16 through 17, Jesus' baptism, which is probably the most popular one that's mentioned, you have all three persons of the Trinity there at one time. You have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And then you have the Father who's saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity showing up in one place. So the Son is not descending upon the Son as a dove. The Spirit's doing that. And the Son is not speaking from heaven. The Father's doing that. And the Father or the Spirit's not being baptized. The Son is receiving that. And so you have all, just, all three distinct people. You also see that in John chapter 14, verse 26, 
whenever Jesus speaks of himself going away um, and uh, the Father sending the Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, you see this every time we have a baptism, and that is we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we believe in the Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then whenever we come to um, gather together as the church to worship the Lord, we come to worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. Now there are different roles and we'll get into that. But number one, we believe in the Trinity. That is, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. One God, three persons. Number two, we believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And this will be the only place we go as far as the text to explain these doctrinal realities. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So number one, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It just simply means that all Scripture is God-breathed, or we could say it this way, that God is the ultimate author of the Bible. Peter tells us that men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we believe that, um, that the Bible has been given to us, again, as a revelation uh, of God and a revelation by God. He has revealed Himself to us in the... Um, in the greatest way through Scripture. When I say the greatest way, I mean you can look out at the creation and you can know there is a God and this God is powerful and this God is active, but you can't get really much more information than that. If you really want to know who God is and what God's like and what God's done, it comes through His revelation. Uh, that He's given us through His Spirit. And so Scripture, we say, is inspired by God. Now, because the Bible is inspired, because we believe that God is the author, then whenever we say that Scripture is inerrant, what we mean by that is that Scripture is without error. And as we're talking about these things, we're, we're talking about the inspired Greek text and, and our English translations here come from that. So that's without error. Um, we go further in 2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, this, this claim that the Bible is without error is one that's been under attack for a long, long, long time. 
we've talked about this before, but it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, the Bible's just full of contradictions. And a very good response to that is, could you show me two? Uh, because most people can't even show you one. Uh, it's just something that they've heard rehashed and, and those sorts of things. The other reality is you'll find that most people who are confidently claiming the Bible is full of errors, uh, they know very little, if anything, actually about Scripture. They may know people who know something about it, but they themselves haven't spent much time at all studying Scripture. Uh, and then some people write um, uh, books about this, and uh, they 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 do it in a way that is um, just academically dishonest to try to prove a point. Uh, one recent writer named Bart Ehrman would uh, fall in that category. He wrote a um, a book. This has been I don't know ten years ago, maybe maybe longer than that. Called "Misquoting Jesus," and and the whole premise of the book was that. Uh, the scriptures that we have are, they're full of errors. These claims that Jesus was God is not really, uh, is not really, uh, what the original, uh, uh, first century Christians believed. Um, and so it's just to debunk the inerrancy of scripture. At the same time, he published a scholarly publication that was going to be reviewed by scholars. And in it, he said, we can be 100% sure that the manuscripts that we um, have today uh, are exactly what the first century Christians believed. So he says one thing out of one side of his mouth and another thing out of the other. Why? Because he knew that scholars would eat his lunch if he tried to publish that for them. But the common man, for the most part, wouldn't know the difference. So there's a lot of academic dishonesty whenever it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture, or maybe I should say this claim that there are errors and inconsistencies in Scripture. But we believe there aren't, and we believe that Scripture proves that out. Second Timothy 3.16, not only is Scripture inspired by God, God who cannot lie wrote a book without error, but we also believe that it's profitable for doctrine. And so here we're thinking about the authority of Scripture. Okay, Doctrine is just teaching. How do you know what to believe? How do you know what to think about particular issues? How do you know what God thinks about particular issues? Well, we believe that Scripture is authoritative when it comes to that. That just means the Bible has the right to tell us how to think and how to live. That's what we mean when we say the authority of Scripture. Okay, The pastor doesn't have the right to do that. Uh, the church body itself doesn't have the right to do that. It's the Scripture that we all place ourselves under as far as the authority. So I can't call you to do anything that Scripture doesn't call you to do if I'm going to be faithful. But brothers and sisters, if we are seeking to live in a way that honors God and worships the Lord, and we want to worship Him in spirit and in truth, the authority of the Bible is what's going to determine what we hold as truth and what we dis what we distinguish as error. So the Bible has the right uh, to tell us how to think, how to act. And then we said the sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And we have the other three, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be perfect, or that is mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When we say the sufficiency of Scripture, 
What we're saying is that the Bible gives gives us everything a person needs to understand how to please glorify, glorify and properly represent God. You want to know how to live your life in a God-honoring way? Scripture is sufficient for that. You want to know how to think about particular aspects as it relates to godliness? The Bible is sufficient for that. You want to know how to navigate life in a way that honors the Lord? Well, Scripture is sufficient for that. So the sufficiency, sufficiency of Scripture. So again, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. Third, we believe in the eternal covenant of redemption. We believe in the eternal covenant of redemption. Now, before I get into the the details there, it's important that we start with, or at least in the, in the beginning, you know, we start with who is God. And then we start with what do we believe about Scripture? So that if we believe Scripture is inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient, then everything else that we say must be backed by Scripture. Okay, we can't just say that we believe something. Now, the other side is, is that whatever Scripture says is what we must be wrestling with to articulate these particular doctrines or these articles that we say are uh, what we what build or what we've built our faith around, placed our faith in. Um, So as we go through the rest, you've. Some of you who may or may not be familiar with uh, what's taught in the articles of faith, you may say, well, I've heard that taught a different way or I've never heard it quite that way or so forth and so on. And um, again, if you go back, Brother Mike, Brother Wallace put this together and put the scripture references there. The question is not, do I believe that or do I not? The question is, does the Bible teach it? Does the Bible say anything about this? And, and is what the Bible says inconsistent with what we say about it? Okay. And if it is, now when I say we, I guess I just mean any individual. If it is, we must always bow to the authority of Scripture. Okay. As individuals, individuals and collectively. And as I say that, I'm not saying that to build up to some disagreement in the articles of faith. This is where we stand. I say that to say as individuals, if you're wrestling, You've got to wrestle with the Scripture, not just the statement. Is this what the Bible says? So again, we believe, article number three, in the eternal covenant of redemption. The eternal covenant of redemption. Look in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 20 says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the reason we go to this passage is that phrase there at the end of verse 20, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Uh, everlasting covenant, eternal covenant. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the covenant that was made um, between the uh, uh, the persons of the Godhead. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from all eternity covenant together to save a people that would become the um, inheritance or the heirs of salvation through Christ. So why does that matter? What's the difference if it's an everlasting covenant or not? Well, salvation was never a reaction on God's part. Okay, Whenever Adam fell and sin entered into the world, God was not scurrying around trying to figure out what he was going to do next. We believe that before the worlds ever came into existence, we believe that Scripture teaches that there was an eternal and everlasting covenant between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they weren't hurrying up to try to hash all this out after the fall. But this is what God was always going to do, and He was always going to do it to put His glory on display. So, 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll turn there. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, in this section, this first couple of verses of First Peter, we get the roles that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all play in the eternal covenant of redemption. So God the Father, and we'll, we'll look at this aspect a little closer when we get to election or predestination, but God the Father... According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame. Okay, that's Ephesians 1. And we get that, uh, or what I'm taking that from in 1 Peter 2 is this phrase, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, the elect are those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge, to foreknow. It's not just simple, uh, simply uh, academic facts. This is a love. This foreknowledge is a love that God had for His people. And so God's part in the eternal covenant or the everlasting covenant is that He would choose a people in Christ. 
Christ agreed and in the fullness of time, he would humble himself, take on flesh and blood, live a sinless life, offer himself as a spotless sacrifice to the Father for the atonement of all those whom the Father chose. Okay, so God chooses, God the Father chooses. The Son of God accomplishes redemption by living a perfect life and then giving Himself as a sacrifice, as an atonement for God's people on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit agreed that He would quicken, that He would sanctify, that He would indwell all those who were chosen by the Father and redeemed by Christ. And so the covenant of redemption just simply means that before the world began, the Godhead had already agreed on how they were going to, or how the persons of the Godhead were going to accomplish redemption for God's people. Agreed on the roles, and agreed on how that was going to play out. And so the Father chose, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit applies salvation in the lives of God's people. Now we see this covenant of redemption uh, in another way in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. Now in Romans 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose, uh, to them who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. We have here in these verses um, really redemption from beginning to end. It begins with the uh, foreknowledge of God, or that is, it begins with the love of God for a people that then leads to a people being predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then those people are called and justified and glorified. You'll notice that all of these things are mentioned in the past tense. What's the point of that? Or at least what's the point we're making with that right now? Well, the point is, is that these realities that are laid out here These are what make up the eternal covenant that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit entered into before the world began. God committed that He was going to love a people, that He was going to save a people, that He was going to sanctify a people, that He was going to glorify a people. And the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit entered into an eternal covenant to execute that plan in reality. So we believe 
and the everlasting covenant or the eternal covenant of redemption that was with the Godhead before the world began. Number four, we believe in the fall of man. We believe in the fall of man. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This passage teaches us at least four things. It teaches us that sin entered into the world by one man. Okay, we could go back to Genesis chapter 3 and read that. In Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam and he gave Adam his roles and responsibilities and he gave him access to every tree in the garden but one. And he said, The day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Then in Genesis chapter 3, Satan deceives Eve and Adam voluntarily with his eyes open sins against God and plunges the world under the curse of sin. So that, well, we'll get to that as we walk through the text. Number one, So what we said earlier, number one, sin entered into the world by one man. We live in a world that is fallen, And while the world bears the effects of the fall, the fall came through man. Came through one man, Adam. So both physical death and spiritual death or spiritual separation from God was the result of Adam's sin. God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God meant exactly what He said. Now the day that they ate, they didn't drop dead physically. They continued to live, continued to have children. We don't know exactly how old they were whenever they fell, but we do know that hundreds of years would pass before they would die. But the day that they ate, There was a spiritual separation, a spiritual death that was instantaneous. Their fellowship with God, their communion with God, this walking and and fellowshipping with God in the cool of the day, that ended because sin entered in. So sin entered into the world by one man. Adam's sin infected the whole world. Death was a result of that, both physical and spiritual. And then he says that death passed upon all men. Okay, So Adam's sin didn't just affect him. It affected everyone, including me, including you. So... 
sometimes we can get this mixed up in our minds and it's worth making the distinction. Um, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's the way that works. It's not that you started out neutral and then sinned one day and became a sinner. No, you were, according to Psalm 58.3, you were conceived in iniquity. Okay, you were a sinner from the very beginning. And as you lived, all that your sin did was prove that point. So death passed upon all men, or as Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, uh, the wages of sin is death, or the payment recompense for sin is death. And then the last encompassing statement, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We, we live in a world where everyone is under this condemnation. All have sinned. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we say that we believe in the fall of man, really we're saying, in, in, uh, just to be clear, that we believe in the, in the fall of humanity. That every man and woman, adult and child, lives under the curse of sin. And in and of themselves, by their nature, they are living in a separation a death spiritually, a spiritual separation, a gulf between them and God that they cannot uh, fix or cross or span. Our sin has separated us from God and we've inherited that separation from Adam, but we've also participated in that as we lived out what we actually are. Okay, This is a fundamental truth. Everything else that we believe about salvation makes zero sense outside of the knowledge and the revelation of the fall of man. Why would God need to redeem a people who didn't really need to be redeeming, uh, be redeemed? Uh, why is it that uh, we would need to be quickened with Christ if we started out neutral and could make our way there anyway, you know, by ourselves? The reality is, is that even the best, the best of the best that we do, Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Just simply means the best we can do is a disgusting offense, a stench in God's nostrils. Why? Because we are sinners. We were conceived in sin. just meant that we came out of the womb that way. And we've inherited Adam's sin nature. So in and of ourselves and left to ourselves, that's where we are. We believe in original sin or we believe in the fall 
of man. Okay, number five. Number five. We believe in election and predestination. We believe in election and predestination. So Matthew 1, 21. Matthew 1, 21. The angel speaking to Joseph says, about Mary, that she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. A couple of realities we get from this passage. Number one, Jesus has a people. And number two, he shall save his people from their sins. This is not a possibility in the angel's mind as he's communicating this to Joseph about Mary. The angel is communicating a sure fact that Mary is going to bring forth a son and his name is going to be Jesus and Jesus will, he shall do something. What's he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sin. And then now the question is, Who are His people? How do we understand that phrase? How do we understand who's being spoken of here? Well, that's where election, that's where predestination comes in. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Probably the most common passage that we go to when it comes to this particular topic. And for good reason. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, when we say we believe in predestination and election, or we believe in the fall of man, we're really saying we believe that Scripture teaches this. We believe that this is in the Bible. And this is what we would, uh, this is what the Lord has revealed and would have us to hold to. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. So we see both terms here, both terms election and predestination. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse... um, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is the electing. 
to uh, election just simply means that God chose his people in Christ before the world began. Now, there are times where people hear that and they think, well, that just sounds off. I can't conceive of a God who would choose some and, and, and not others. And he would do all that before the world began. That just doesn't make sense to me. And here's a, here's a reality that might help with that. There are some things that we may not comprehend, but that we do apprehend from Scripture. Okay. What I mean by that is, there's no getting around the fact that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 speaks about God choosing a people in Christ before the world began. Now, however that makes you feel, and, and, and I don't say that in some sort of a, a, a derogatory way, but however that makes you feel and whatever other questions that may bring up in your, in your heart and mind as you try to reconcile all of that, your logic isn't authoritative and your emotional response isn't authoritative. Scripture's authoritative. And, and when we see that a text like this clearly says that, that, he, that the Father has chosen us in, or that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, okay, we can't just ignore that. We can't pretend like that's such a difficult statement that we can't understand what's being communicated here. Now, I'm not saying that we can explain every in and out of that, but, but I am saying that it, it means what it says. There was a choice in Christ before the world began. And, and then verse five goes on and says that having predestinated us, so that the choosing, or whenever we say election, we're talking about the fact that God chose His people in Christ before the world began. Now, when we're talking about predestination, uh, just in a, in a simplistic way, uh, the, the difference is, I think it's helpful to think this way, is election is what God did, predestination is what God planned. So predestination is a predetermination. He predetermined that all who were chosen in Christ would become adopted children who would live before Him face to face in love. Okay? Predetermined, we go to Romans chapter 8 again, that they would be, that all who were chosen in Christ would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we think about predestination and election. Um, these are biblical realities. And these are biblical realities that are spoken of um, several times in Scripture in a fairly clear way. Romans 9 would be another place if you go there. Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. This is 
speaking about the promise made to Rebekah about Jacob and Esau. And in verse 11, it says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So we have here an illustration. I mean, he's using a, a real scenario, but he's illustrating a point. And it's helpful as you think through a passage like this, or any passage, if there's something that's being illustrated, it's worth noting what that is. And so the point in this section is is to highlight the purpose of God according to election. Okay, you see that. I'm not just uh, implying that or trying to pull that out of somewhere. He tells us that in verse 11. The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Well, what's that? Well, it's this reality that it's not of works. You don't gain God's favor through works. Okay, you don't, you don't bridge the gulf that exists between you and God due to the, the, the fallenness of, or your fallen state. You don't do that by, trying harder, or you don't do that through your works, but but it's of, of him that calleth. So it was said to the to Rebekah that the older shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And you know, we could just stop there with verse 13. This is the reality. That when we're thinking about predestination and election, if we don't understand the fall of man and we don't understand what it means to live in a sin-cursed world in a heart that is fallen, then predestination election won't make any sense. But if we do understand what it means that we've all been born under the curse of sin and that you were created for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to live a life to the glory of God, you were created and you exist for His glory, not your own. And every one of us naturally are inclined to live as if we own the place. This world is here to serve my needs, my purposes. People exist for my glory, my preferences. Well, if that's the case, if essentially we are born into the world thinking we're God and everybody ought to treat us that way, then there's no way for us to course correct. There's no way for us to get to the place in and of ourselves that we see reality for what it is. And what's that? He is God and you are not. He is to be worshipped. And you are to do the worshipping. 
Now, we could play this out. We're not going to for time's sake, but we could play this out in all kinds of practical ways in modern day. Um, when you look at lots of the societal problems that we have today, it's a God complex. It's men and women deciding they can choose what's reality and what's not. They ought to be served. They ought to be bowed down to and their will ought to be bowed to as well. So if we understand the fall of man, the fact that it is impossible to please God in the flesh, beginning of Romans chapter 8, then election and predestination is a must if anyone's going to be saved. Sometimes people ask the question, how is it that God could choose some and not others? And the real question is, how is it that God could choose anybody? How is it that God could, could place His love on any group of rebels who were born into the world believing and acting like they were God and that the world existed for their glory? And the answer to that question is, Romans chapter 9, He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. And He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. You see, brothers and sisters, if we do not fundamentally see salvation as an act of mercy and compassion, if we see it as God giving us something that He owes us because we've done something, we've misunderstood the whole thing. Salvation is an act of pity that's motivated by God's love toward an unlovable people. And so Romans chapter 9, 11 through 16, we could draw out more points here, but for time's sake and for brevity's sake, we won't. He says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And essentially, I reserve the right to be merciful to whom I will be merciful and show compassion to whom I will be compassionate. And then point number six. Point number six. We believe in regeneration, conversion, justification, and faith. Or at least that we're brought to faith. We believe in regeneration, conversion, justification by faith. Okay, Romans chapter 5, back to where we were. Romans chapter 5. We were here earlier to talk about the fall of man. In verse 12, one man's sin entered into the world, death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. If you jump down to verse 17... It says, for if by one man's Offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. What's the point here? Well, he's saying that 
by Adam's sin, sin entered into the world and men were made sinners. So he's saying in the same way, through the justifying work of Christ, that is, through His perfect life and perfect sacrifice, His people are made righteous, just with God. Okay, here's the point. We are placed in good standing before God and justified with God based only on the life and work of Jesus Christ. When we're talking about justification, it just means that you are made right with God. That has nothing to do with you. You cannot do that. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. You're not in the mix. Being justified before God is something that's done for you and to you. It's not something you can do for yourself. And so how do we know? How do we know that we're made right with God? How do we know that we are justified? Well, Romans chapter 5, again, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we receive this justification? How do we know that this has been made on our behalf? It's through faith. That's how. Now, by that, I'm not saying that your faith justifies you before God. Your faith is given to you by God. And it's through the avenue of faith that God communicates that you've been made right with Him. You've been made just before Him so that you can enter into that. All that have been justified are also being sanctified. What does that mean? Well, it just means that they come to know Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus would say that my sheep uh, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The work of sanctification is really just a, a lifelong following of Jesus Christ being conformed more and more to his image. Well, how does any of this happen? How does any of this happen? Well, I'm, I'm hitting the high points here for time's sake, but as far as regeneration, we've talked about this a lot in the Gospel of John. It means, according to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, particularly in verse 1, it means that you've been quickened or you've been made alive in Christ. It means that the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual life so that you are seeing realities you had never seen before, spiritually speaking. There's conviction where there wasn't conviction. There's love where there was no love. Regeneration always leads to conversion. Okay? Conversion just means uh, that you recognize who Christ is, what Christ has done, and you seek to live a life that's following Him. And so we've been given life in Christ. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. It's a gift of God that can that cannot be obtained by works. Okay. And then whenever we're thinking about regeneration, conversion, justification, faith, we are created as His workmanship or as a new creation that's created unto good works. That's the life of faith. 
The life of faith is a life that lives by faith and a life that walks by faith. That just simply means you're believing what God has revealed and then you're living in accordance to that. So that's the first, uh, that's the first half of our articles of faith in summary form. Again, we believe in the Trinity. God the Son, I'm sorry, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in the eternal covenant of redemption and the Godhead. We believe in the fall of man. We believe in election and predestination. And we believe in regeneration, conversion, justification, faith. So as we come back next week, we'll look at the uh, at the next six. But again, I would remind you as we close that these realities are realities that we would call non-negotiable. It's just simply articulating what we say are the major doctrines in Scripture that everything else hangs on, and that what and and that must be understood if we would understand the other aspects. And so, I would give you those some of you as a reminder. And then some of you to wrestle with. And I would encourage you to search the Scriptures out to see if they are true. And then I would remind you that as we take up the baton of passing truth from one generation to the next, in seed form, this is fundamentally what we've said we're seeking to pass down. These realities... These are the doctrinal distinctives that we say are important for any believer to build their life on and their understanding of God and Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for truth. We thank You for um, the truth that You have revealed to us through Your Word and through the Spirit. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful to hold to what You've given us that we would pass it down to the coming generation, that we would do that as we hold a high view of Scripture and Scripture's authority. Father, we acknowledge that the uh, 12 things that we have articulated in our articles of faith are not the only 12 truths in Scripture. Uh, Father, but they are truths that all other truths can be built around. And to misunderstand one of these is to misunderstand the rest. And so I pray that we would uh, be faithful I pray that we would be students of Your Word, and I pray that we would be faithful to communicate and to pass down that truth that we've received. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.